Tonight, straight from the source, House Speaker Mike Johnson is here, fresh off a high-stakes meeting with President Biden ahead of a looming government shutdown. Plus, it was a contentious day in court for Donald Trump, with the judge threatening to evict him from the courtroom as the ex-president responded, quote, I would love that. Also, body cam footage that was just released from a police raid is now under scrutiny tonight, new scrutiny, after flashbangs were used inside a home where a toddler was on a ventilator. The mother is here with me tonight. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. President Biden summoned leaders from both parties and both sides of Capitol Hill to the White House today, hoping to break a stalemate over immigration and aid to Ukraine. But right now, that looks unlikely, in doubt at best. Both parties say that they agree that something must be done on the border, that Ukraine is in desperate need of critical military assistance, and that Israel needs American help in its war against Hamas. There's a deal potentially in the works to unlock all of that. Senate leadership appears to be on board, but the holdup tonight is in the House, specifically with House Republicans. The new Speaker of the House is facing growing pressure from his conference as a growing number in his party on the right say that his job could be at risk if they don't like the deal that he makes. And joining me now is the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. Speaker Johnson, great to have you on The Source. Thank you for being here. You called this meeting today a productive one. But my question is, where is the common ground between you and the Senate and the White House on immigration? Well, we're about to find out. You know, the Senate has been working on some sort of compromise bill. The House passed our measure, H.R. 2, about eight and a half months ago. Uh, it's been sitting on Chuck Schumer's desk for a long time. It has key provisions in it that would actually solve the crisis, which is the open border and the humanitarian catastrophe that comes along with that. So we would reinstitute the Remain in Mexico policy. We would end catch and release. We would uh, reform the asylum and broken parole processes and even rebuild parts of the wall. But many of those elements are critical in order to solve the problem. And I, I articulated that to the president again today, as I have been doing since I got the speaker's gavel. But of course, you know, the White House and Senate Democrats say they are not going to pass H.R. 2. So, so where where do you agree? Where can there be some movement here? Well, I, I think we had productive discussion today at the White House because I, I told them it doesn't matter to me what you label it. I don't care if you call it H.R. 2, but those elements are really important. And I illustrated to the president and, and to uh, all of our colleagues that are around that table that this is not Republican talking points. We, we went down to the border about three weeks ago. I brought 64 House Republicans down there to see what's happening at Eagle Pass, which is kind of the epicenter right now. And the Border Patrol agents there, the sheriffs on the ground, the people who deal with it every day said that there's simple action that can be taken right now. You don't even need new federal law. You need executive action to stem the flow. And, and the, the deputy chief of the Border Patrol, who's a 33-year veteran of the agency, Caitlin, told us in his own words, he said, I feel like I'm administering an open fire hydrant. I don't need more buckets. I need to reduce the flow. And so we talked about in the White House today how that can be done. And, and the president has a, a very important personal you, executive role to play. You agree that just executive action alone is not what you're looking for here, right? I mean, your job is to, to legislate, to pass legislation. So if that's what you're seeking to do, I don't think the White House call, cares what you call it either. It's, it's what's in H.R. 2 that they don't like. And so I think that's the question. What's, what's the plan here? Because if the Senate's preparing to pass its own version as soon as next week of an immigration bill, are you going to put that on the House floor? 
Well, look, the devil's in the details. I, I don't yet know what they're going to propose. There's been lots of rumors about it, but I'm, I'm very hopeful that they will give us something meaningful that is very close to what we've sent over from the House. Again, the reason is not for politics. This is beyond Republican versus Democrat. This is about a serious catastrophe that almost nine out of 10 Americans understand is at an emergency level is something that must be addressed. That's what the polling says, because they see what's happening. Caitlin, we had 302,000 people encountered at the border in December alone. We've had over 300 suspects on the terrorist watch list coming to the country. Fentanyl is the leading cause of death for Americans age 18 to 49 right now, coming right over the border. I mean, human trafficking, it goes on and on. People yeah. are coming from 170 countries. We cannot continue what we're doing right now. Uh, and I should note, a lot of that comes through legal border crossings. But you said the devil is in the details here, that you want to see what the Senate is offering. But then why did you tell the Republican conference in a call the other day that that bill is dead on arrival in the House? If the bill looks like some of the things that have been rumored, of course it's dead in the House because it wouldn't solve the problem. You can't just do pieces of this and leave, for example, parole untouched, leave the current broken parole process untouched because it's a giant loophole that would allow all these people to continue to come in. I mean, they're, they're settling millions of people throughout the country. They're sending them to every community in America, seemingly, and the American taxpayer is having to fund this. Do you know U.S. taxpayers are spending billions and billions of dollars on the housing and education and the health care and all the benefits that all these illegals are getting when they come into the country. Caitlin, this is not a sustainable situation, and everybody knows that. If there's an agreement here that Senate Republicans are behind, people like Senator John Cornyn, someone who, who by no means shares the same views on this as President Biden, if they're in agreement on this, is that going to be something that, that you say no to? Because House Republicans, you know, are the ones, y'all took that trip to the border, you've said it's a crisis. I mean, what is the, what's the takeaway for the public if you say no to a bipartisan agreement that even Senate Republicans are behind? Caitlin, we, we don't know who's with, uh, in favor of it because it hasn't been, the text hasn't even been filed yet. There's been no vote in the Senate. Well, John Cornyn you and, I were and John about Thune, hy- they've said that they, that they believe that this is one of the best agreements that, that you'd be able to get. And that they said that what you said to your conference, that maybe with a Republican president, you'd be able to get a better deal. They disagree with that because they say it's not going to get 60 votes in the Senate. If, if the best we can get does not solve the problem and not stem the flow, then it will not be acceptable on the House side. And I have said that very clearly from day one. We have to solve the problem. This is not about getting political points for one side or the other. It's about solving the problem that is now a crisis for every community. Every state is a border state now because people are going all across the country. And by the way, when we were in Eagle Pass, we found out that 60 to 70 percent of the people crossing the border down there are single adult males between the ages of 18 and 40. These are not huddled masses of families seeking asylum. These are individual single males coming into the country for we don't know what. Okay, this is serious business. The facts are alarming and the American people are sufficiently, uh, uh, I think, alarmed by this and they want us to make a change. So Republicans and Democrats both should come together and solve it. There's a there's an outcry from Democrat mayors around the country in these so-called sanctuary cities. Everybody knows we have to fix it. And we've talked to, to mayors. There's no denying this is a crisis. But will you still be able to stand on that and say that the border is a crisis if you reject an agreement from the Senate, a bipartisan agreement that they can get passed, that Senator Mitch McConnell's on board with, John Thune, John Cornyn, will you still be able to say that the border is a crisis if you rejected a deal that maybe doesn't do everything that you wanted, but does do some stuff to address the border? Caitlin, you're, you're asking me to address a hypothetical. I have no idea. It doesn't matter to me who votes for what. 
Because, no, it is because we don't know what the text is. Soon, they said. You know the they general said. outlines of it, though, and you said it's already dead on arrival. So I think there was some skepticism among Senate Republicans about whether or not anything that they put together and passed that, that you'd be willing to put on the House floor. No, I have been very clear from day one, the day I got the gavel, we need certain elements to make sure this is that the border situation is solved. That means to restrict the flow, not based upon talking points or hyperbole or what Republicans say they want. This is coming from the experts on the ground. We went down there to talk to the people in charge of administering this. The Border Patrol agents, the sheriffs in Texas, the people who live with this crisis every single day. And they have asked us to ensure that this happens. By the way, Caitlin, by one way of example, the, they say that if the president himself would sign one executive order and, and reinstate Remain in Mexico, that policy, it could stem the flow by 70%. So I asked the president, I asked President Biden just the other day on the phone, I said, why would you not do that, sir? This would solve a big part of the problem. You have it within your ability to do it. But we're talking about yet. legislation here, and you keep going back to executive orders. But on the actual legislation that you as House Speaker can do, it seems like what you're saying is that your position is what House Republicans want here or nothing, that there's no compromise to be made. Is that right? No, that's not what I'm saying, Caitlin. What I'm saying is we have existing federal law in the books that Secretary Mayorkas has not enforced. We documented 64 examples of the White House, President Biden's executive order, and his uh, agencies taking action to cause this catastrophe. I told the president that today in the White House, in the meeting with all my colleagues there. And I said, Mr. President, you have created, you and your policies have created the catastrophe we have right now, and it is incumbent upon you to fix it. We need a combination, okay? But executive action is a huge and important part of this, and the president okay. needs to take that action. I find it notable you keep pointing to executive action, but today when you came out of the White House, you also said that you understand the necessity of Ukraine funding. Does that mean that you believe you'll be able to get Ukraine funding passed? Listen, we all oppose Vladimir Putin and the barbarism and the aggression that he's, uh, he's shown there, and he must be stopped. But what's happening in Ukraine right now, that status quo cannot be maintained. That's unacceptable. We cannot spend billions of dollars without a clear strategy articulated. And I told the president in the meeting today, again, as I've been saying repeatedly, sir, you have to articulate what the strategy is. What is the end game? What is the outcome of that that we're trying to achieve? And how will we have accountability for the dollars, the precious taxpayer dollars of the American people? Well, when he you talks were in the a room with about, him, did you ask him yeah. those questions? I absolutely did, exactly and that way. What did and he I, tell and I, you? Said, I said, Mr. President, you've just spent a lot of time here talking about the safety and security and the sovereignty of Ukraine. How about the safety, security, sovereignty of the United States? That's what our people are demanding first. That is the priority. But when you I asked him, him to exactly lay out his plans on Ukraine specifically, what did he tell you? I mean, you, you were in there in the room with him. I didn't get any answers today, Caitlin. Um, it was a round robin where all the senators and the uh, chairman of the House, uh, everyone got to, to say their piece, and then the, the clock expired and we ran out of time. We do not have the answers that we have been seeking for Ukraine funding, and I've been very clear, very forthright. I've been in good faith from day one. I went to the White House within hours of, of being handed the gavel to be speaker back in late October, and I told them, I told the Secretary of State, the, uh, Jake Sullivan, the NSA, I told Secretary Austin, I told the, the White House and the president himself, we need the answers that the American people are demanding and but deserve. Do you think ultimately you'll get Ukraine funding passed? We, we'll see. I, look, I understand the importance, and I've said this clearly, I understand the importance of Ukraine funding. I understand the threat that Vladimir Putin poses to the world order and what he might do if he's not stopped. But we have to be good stewards of the, uh, the taxpayers' dollars. And I'm saying that the status quo there is not acceptable. And I think a large and growing number of the American people understand that. 
we've got to be very serious about how they, how they handle these issues. And I, I can't address hypotheticals because we don't have it yet. But I think we'll have those details very soon. Well, we have seen the White House's proposal on Ukraine funding, of course, paired with also funding for Israel. But I do wonder about that because a member of your conference said today that if you pass Ukraine funding, she will personally motion, make the motion to, to oust you from your role as House Speaker. That's Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Are you worried about threats to your job like that? No, I, I have a job to do. We all have to do our jobs. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is very upset about the lack of oversight over the funding and the lack of a articulation of a plan, as am I, all of us. Many she doesn't care about a plan. She doesn't want any Ukraine funding, period, she, no, no matter what the White House says the plan I, is. I understand that. Yeah, I've talked with her about it personally at great length, and she's made her position very clear. Um, we, we have to do our job. We have to continue to ensure that we're covering all these bases, and we'll see how all this shakes out. I'm, I'm not worried about that. I've got a job to do here. And we have to make sure that we get the answers that we've demanded. I don't think these are unreasonable answers and questions, by the way. These are, these are very uh, reasonable things we've asked the White House for, and they just haven't produced it. Well, Jake Sullivan was in that meeting today and from our readouts was, was going through what Ukraine needs and how immediate that need is. Uh, but I noticed there you didn't say whether or not you definitely do think Ukraine funding will get passed. You know, part of this entire funding conversation is whether or not there's going to be a government shutdown. Are you committed to avoiding a government shutdown, Speaker? Well, I, I think my actions have shown that we're trying to do the right thing, and that is to get the appropriations process completed. We did have a very important innovation, innovation here, and in that we broke the uh, what I call the Christmas omnibus spending fever. Every year, as long as I've been in Congress and many years before, the Senate jammed the White House right before Christmas with a you know 3,000-page piece of legislation that funded all the government in one foul swoop, $1.7, $1.8 billion. Uh, trillion. We didn't do that this year. We broke it up. So we have the deadlines coming up. We're, we're going to pass a continued resolution to allow a little bit more time for that process to go forward and, and keep the government operating. We have to demonstrate we can govern, and I think we will do that. And no more CRs after this, or is there a possibility that you may get down the road and have another CR? Well, no, I sure hope they're not necessary, because I think all the appropriators are doing their work right now. But is that a yes or a no? Because right you said I sure hope not, but, but I mean, you as Speaker can make the decision on that. Well, I can, but we shouldn't have to make that decision because by setting the dates now in March 1 and March 8, we'll have enough time to get that process done. And I'm, I'm convinced that we will because you have people on both sides, uh, uh, both chambers who are working in good faith to finish that up. I think they will. I think we'll be able to get our policy riders and our policy changes in that. And that was a very important part for the House Republicans to be able to achieve. And, and we cut some of the funding as well. We got another $16 billion carved out of that. And I think those are important steps for us to take. Yeah, we've heard a, a lot of complaints from some lawmakers, Republican lawmakers who've been on the show about those CRs and what that spending plan is. But, Speaker, let me ask you on the presidential race. You have endorsed former President Donald Trump in the 2024 race. That's a change from where you were when he ran the first time around back in 2016. You said then that you believe he lacked character and a moral center. I'm curious why your opinion on that has changed now, why you are now endorsing him. No, I, I did endorse President Trump the first time around. Uh, before I got to know him, before many of the, the country got to know him, I just knew a little bit about his, uh, uh, his, his reputation and some things he had said. Look, President Trump and I are, are very close. We work very closely together. I was one of his impeachment defense lawyers. As you know, you covered that whole saga. Uh, I, was a, I was a very close ally of his in Congress. I'm convinced he's going to be the next president of the United States, that he will get a, a second term. And I'm very much looking forward to that happening because we need him to come in and bring those policies back to fix this country. How and I think he's going to have the opportunity to do that. How often do you speak to him? Uh, pretty frequently now. You know, every, I don't know, few days or so. 
Um, uh, he is very busy right now, of course, with the, just finished up the Iowa caucus in New Hampshire. I think he's gonna uh, finish well, and I think on the Republican side, this nomination will be, uh, will be completed and locked up here pretty soon. I mean, does he give you advice on, on leading this fractious House Republican party as it is right now? No, we, we talk about policy. We talk about uh, a lot of things that are pending for the country, the, his campaign and things that are going on. Uh, I, I share with him uh, things that I hear from uh, the grassroots and having been on the ground, I've traveled to I think 15 states now in the last 10 weeks going to my colleagues' districts and hearing from the people. And they're very excited about a change. What's happening right now in the country under the failed Biden administration uh, has been devastating to the people. There's not a single metric of public policy that President Biden can point to in his administration to say that they've been successful. And everybody knows that. And it doesn't matter what talking points they say. The facts are stubborn things, as John Adams said. You know, that's and I think interesting. the people are looking at the facts. That's interesting to me to hear you say that. I'm not surprised that you hold that opinion, of course. You are the Republican House Speaker. But but we've heard from House Republicans, people like Congressman Chip Roy, who say the House Republicans have nothing to show for what they've done, that they've been the least productive. Yeah, Chip's one of my, one of my very good friends, and he and I have talked about this in, at, at length. When he said that, he was discounting the fact that we only have the majority in one chamber, in one house of the, of the legislative body here. Uh, the Senate, of course, is controlled by Chuck Schumer and the Democrats. So we passed some very important legislation, landmark legislation, including H.R. 1, which is the uh, energy bill that we, that we passed, H.R. 2, which is the Secure the Border Act. Things like that that we've sent over are sitting on Chuck Schumer's desk. So we only have control over one House of Congress, and we don't have the White House and the Senate. So, but doesn't that uh, mean you have to compromise on things like immigration? Well, that's why I went to the White House today to talk that through. Of course, we have divided government, and that's what's required. The, the, the framers of the, of the Constitution and our system understood that it was going to take hard work by both sides and people with very different philosophical viewpoints, but, but to be able to sit down in good faith and work it out, to arm wrestle over public policy and reach a consensus that would move the ball forward for the most people. That's what this process is about. We don't always get what we want. And Chip and I share a lot of the frustrations. We surely would like to get a lot more, but I told him, Chip, remember, next January, totally different situation, because I think we're going to have a bigger majority in the House. I think the Republican Party is going to retake the Senate. And I think we're going to have the White House as well. It'll be a very different day and a very different set of policies when we get to that point. Yeah. Well, you've seen that before. We'll see what happens here. Speaker Mike Johnson, thank you for your time. We look forward to having you back here on The Source. Thanks a lot. Good to be with you. Ahead here, another judge has now threatened to kick Donald Trump out of court. The former president responding immediately, almost daring him to. High drama playing out here in New York today. We'll tell you what happened ahead Plus, police in Ohio are facing major questions tonight after they used flashbangs while raiding a home that ended up having a toddler on a ventilator inside. The mother of that 17-month-old will join me in just a moment with new video of the incident. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition 
that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Donald Trump just couldn't contain himself. Not exactly breaking news, but the former president clearly struggling to maintain his composure as he was inside a New York courtroom today with E. Jean Carroll on the stand. Trump at one point goading the judge who threatened to kick him out of the courtroom during this testimony from the woman that he was found liable of sexually abusing in the 1990s. She's now seeking $10 million in damages for, quote, lies that she says have shattered her reputation. Reporters who were inside the room observed Trump reacting physically and audibly during Carol's testimony, shaking his head, overheard saying things, and, and I'm quoting what he was heard saying now, it is a witch hunt, it really is a con job, she's gotten her memory back, even reportedly at one point pounding the table, which elicited some tough talk from the judge here, Judge Lewis Kaplan, who said at one point, Mr. Trump, I hope I don't have to consider excluding you from the trial. I understand you're probably very eager for me to do that. Trump responded, I would love it. Judge Kaplan said back, I know you would. You just can't control yourself in these circumstances, apparently. The judge also losing his patience with the behavior of Trump's attorney in the courtroom today, Alina Haba, at one point telling her to sit down. The ex-president continued to air his grievances after the trial wrapped for the day and he left the courtroom. He would rather have me miss the funeral or go to the funeral, miss the trial. And that's a nasty man. He's a nasty judge. He's a Trump-hating guy. This is a person I have no idea until this happened, obviously. I have no idea who she was, and nor could I care less. I, frankly, am the one that suffered damages. I should be given money, given damages. Former federal prosecutor and CNN's senior legal analyst Ellie Honig is here to break down everything that happened. I should note, the funeral he's referring to there is for Melania Trump's mother. It's happening tomorrow. The judge denied it because the judge said, you don't have to be here. Your presence is not required. But I mean, just this wild day on just the second day of this trial, I wonder what your main takeaways were. So I just read the transcript, 200 pages. It's actually really interesting. Uh, Three big ones for me. Number one, I think E. Jean Carroll made a very powerful showing about her um, emotional damages that she went through. She laid out for the jury, I think, in a very compelling fashion. This is what these comments did to me. This is how I suffered, had sleepless nights, was terrified. Number two, I actually think Alina Haba, look, she's not a courtroom technician. She had all sorts of problems putting evidence in. She got lambasted by the judge a few times. But on the topic of economic damages, I actually think she did a decent job on cross-examination. She showed that there was a point in the 90s when E. Jean Carroll had a thriving career, was making a lot of money, and then she was all but forgotten and unemployed. And then this happened, and she came back into the public scene. Now, it's a cold-hearted claim, and it may backfire, but I think she made an effective argument that There's minimal, if any, economic damages. And the third point is just watching Judge Kaplan control that courtroom. He is one of the tightest, most controlling, really most effective judges. And watching him try to keep a lid on Alina Haba and Donald Trump. And I think he did a really good job of balancing their rights to make their case with keeping order in his courtroom. That's really interesting on the second point about how maybe that's an effective uh, effective comment to the jury about how much money E. Jean Carroll has made, what her her things are, what, what she's made. The other point, though, that they were trying to make also is how E. Jean Carroll felt after Donald Trump talked to her. Yeah. And they brought up this moment from our town hall with Donald Trump, which was the day after the court had decided this. And this is what, what happened there. 
They said she wasn't raped. Okay, that was her charge. She wasn't. They found they that he did, sexually they found, abused her. No, no, what? Say what? They, they, did, they said he didn't rape her. And they did I didn't do anything didn't. else either. You know what? Because I have no idea who the hell she is. But Mr. President, I don't know can, who I, this woman can I ask? Is. I have no idea who the hell. She's a Mr. whack President. job. She said today she felt worthless yeah. when she saw those comments and the crowd laughing at what Trump said about her. On the flip side of Alina Haba's argument, how does a comment, how does that play with the jury? I think it's so powerful. We, we tend to think of juries and trials as these mechanical processes. Take my word for it. It's human beings. You are sitting feet away from nine New Yorkers, in this case, seven women, two men, and they're taking note of this. And I think you can see that clip and absolutely understand how that's humiliating to E. Jean Carroll. And I think they're going to take it into account. And by the way, Caitlin, all of this is cumulative. The jury is entitled under the law of this case to take into account all the comments Donald Trump has made over the last week back to the town hall. And I think it's all going to build up. We'll wait to see. I've got several more days of trial. Ellie Honig, thanks for reading that 200-page <laughs> transcript for us. Thank you. We'll also be back in just a moment, so don't go away, because this is someone whose name came up at this trial today. You've seen him here on The Source before. George Conway is next. There was a moment in that courtroom today that we were just talking about when E. Jean Carroll, who was on the stand, Donald Trump staring her down, talked about how the idea of suing him came up. Apparently, it all started with a conversation that she had at a party with someone who should be quite familiar to our audience, the prominent conservative attorney, George Conway, who, as I like to remind everyone, was once in the running to be Trump's solicitor general, now turned to fierce critics. Safe to say that if he's back in the White House, you won't be in the running for that job. George, but great to have you back. I mean, this is a fascinating part of this for people, you know, who there's so much happening here. It's hard to pay attention. But you actually helped get the ball rolling on this case. Can you just walk me through how that happened? Yeah, I mean, what happened is that I met uh, Jean Carroll by chance uh, within a couple of weeks of the of, of her article coming out, the article at New York Magazine that started started all of this. And I had written a piece in the Washington Post uh, the weekend right after that story hit, basically saying, well, Republicans, if you believe Juanita Broderick, the woman who made a rape accusation against Bill Clinton, well, you damn well better believe Jean Carroll because she has contemporaneous witnesses. She had two witnesses who ultimately testified um, for her at the trial about how she in 1996 told them about what had happened at the Bergdorf Goodman store. And it just so happened I, I ran into Jean Carroll at this party. And and, and she came up to me. I said, hello. She said, I think she thanked me for the, the, the op-ed piece that I had written. And then somehow the topic came, like, you know, some people are saying I should sue. Um, I don't know what, I, I don't know, what, what, does that make any sense to you? And immediately, I mean, it popped into my head, well, you've got a pretty good defamation claim here. You, you know, the, the statute of limitations on the rape has run. But there's no question that if, if, if the rape happened, and, and it seems like you have corroborating evidence, it did, um, well, he's liable to you because he's called you a liar. And, and then I said, you know, I think I know the right lawyer for you. And I, the next day, I, I contacted my good friend Robbie Kaplan and told, told her that, you know, uh, Jean Carroll, I, I don't know, I'm sure you've read about this in the paper, um, she, she may be interested in bringing a lawsuit. This might be something you might be interested in. And that's how, that's how it all got started. And, of course, that is still her attorney who was there in the courtroom Absolutely. with her today. She's a marvelous lawyer. Absolutely what your, spectacular. What did you make of, what were your main takeaways from what happened today in that room? Well, I think, it, you know, I think it's classic Donald Trump. I think the judge, Judge Kaplan, who is really one of the smartest federal judges 
in the country and one of the toughest, but, but fair. Um, he had it exactly right when he said that, I, I guess you can't control yourself. He said that to Donald Trump. Donald Trump cannot control himself. And I think this is an, an important point. This case is actually a nice microcosm of, psych, of, of Trump's psychological condition. I think it's important that we start talking about that because all of the things that you hear criticism of Donald Trump for, the misogyny, the racism, the authoritarianism, the criminality, you know, the conduct of Mar-a-Lago, all of these things stem from his deep psychological disorders. He is a narcissistic sociopath and he behaved like one in court. And the jury is getting to see that up close and personal. And, and you saw it up close and personal in that, personally in that clip of the town hall where Donald Trump is continually just lie after lie after lie before you can even say stop. Um, and, and three lies about uh, about um, about uh, Jean Carroll just in that in those clips. One is he said that he never met her. Well, there was a photograph of them meeting back in the 90s. It was it was actually in the original New York Magazine article. The second is he's claiming that oh she's not my type as though she wasn't good looking enough for him. Well, he at his deposition he identified. The picture of this beautiful woman in that same photograph, who was E. Jean Carroll, he said, oh, that's Marla Maples, my second that's wife. And, and then the third thing he says is like, the jury didn't found that I didn't rape her. That's not true. The jury found that he penetrated her with his hands. And that's not technically rape under New York law. But as the judge has said three times in written opinions since, including last week, Donald Trump raped Jean Carroll by any reasonable definition of that word in the colloquial sense. Yeah, they said liable. So he's just a pathological liar. And I think that his, well, his, his self-defeating antics in court, I mean, that might work on the campaign trail, but it's not going to work in a courtroom. So you think, and I think it hurts yes. him to be in there because he had kind of, when, when we interviewed him at that town hall, I asked if he regretted not testifying because he, he had considered it and his attorneys urged him not to. Yeah. Now he's making clear he's going to show up every, every day as much as he can to this. And you don't think it helps him. No, it doesn't. I mean, and, and it shows his, his, his remarkable cowardice, okay? He's fine to make snark, snarky comments and sotto voce comments in front of the jury and say, this is a witch hunt and, oh, she's lying. It's like, okay, well, dude, you had the opportunity to actually face that first jury and tell them that she was lying and you chickened out. He, you know, like most bullies, he's a coward. And he's just, you know, he's taking the coward's way out and he's trying to play the victim. He's trying to get the judge to throw him out and play mm -hmm. the victim because he's too scared to testify because he's a liar. Well, he said in court today that, that he would love if the judge did. We'll see what happens here going forward. A yeah. lot more to talk about. George Conway, thank you for Thanks. joining tonight. Also tonight to the police right, it is now under scrutiny after body cam footage was just released in Ohio. This is a following a raid on a home that had a toddler inside who was on a ventilator. Police set off flashbangs. A mother says that it harmed her sick child. She'll join me to talk about it right after this. Today, officials in Elyria, Ohio, releasing body cam video showing officers throwing flashbangs during a house raid with both a mother and her 17-month-old baby on a ventilator inside. Police were there to serve a warrant on a teenage suspect in a stolen weapons investigation that they've been conducting. And these are the moments that we can show you now. Police entering the home, deploying flashbangs. I do want to warn you that what you're about to see this video, it is difficult to see. 
That woman you see there is Courtney Price telling them her baby is inside the home. She was then searched. She says that her child has since been diagnosed with chemical pneumonitis, a form of lung irritation that is due to inhaling gases caused by flashbangs. Police say that the baby was not exposed to chemical agents or a continuous burn. And I should note, tonight CNN has also obtained ring doorbell camera video from the home's front door in the moments after the raid. About an hour after the police entered, you can hear an unidentified voice on the camera, on the video, saying this. It's the wrong house. I should note, we cannot verify who is speaking in that clip that you just heard. We are trying to do so now. We did receive a copy of the warrant. It does list the same address as the home, but the suspect in the case had moved. With me now is the mother that you see on that body cam video, Courtney Price, joining us from the hospital where she is with her baby tonight. Courtney, I just first want to say thank you for coming on. I can't imagine what what the last few days have been like for you. What was even going through your mind when you heard the officers at your door? You must have been so stunned. Yes, so I didn't have, it was very fast paced. I didn't have time to process anything. I remember I heard a knock at the door. My sister had just left for work and she told me that my uncle would be home soon. So I expected him home and um, I thought it was him knocking on the door and then I started walking towards the door. I could see through the glass a bunch of police. And then by the time I got to the steps, the door was busting open, the windows were busting open. And I noticed in the video, you come right to the to the officers, and your your first thing that you say is that that your baby is inside. But but were you were you worried that if you picked him up, what would happen before you went to the door? So I, I wouldn't have time to pick him up because he was on his ventilator. It would have to be unplugged from the wall. It would have to be took off of the ventilator pole, and he would have to change to. I would have to change his tubes around. It's a whole big thing, so I wouldn't have had time to grab him. And I should note, you're talking to me live from the the hospital tonight. How's Waylon doing, first off? He is definitely on the mend. He is breathing a lot better. His eyes are a lot better. We still don't know when our discharge will be, but he is on the mend. We heard from the police department, and they, they said any allegation, and I'm quoting them now, suggesting that the child, Waylon, was exposed to chemical agents, lack of medical attention, or negligence is not true. I just wonder what your response to that is. So in one of the body cam footages, you can see them hit the window with the flashbang. They drop the flashbang outside, but you see the smoke entering into the window. Waylon is on an oxygen concentrator. This is the doctor's thought process is... The chemicals have gotten into his oxygen concentrator and pushed it into his lungs, or he has just sat there and inhaled it through his mouth. And what have the doctors said about the effects that they believe that this could have on him? Um, we still don't know. We know his lungs. Um, 
It was born very premature, so he already has vision issues. He has hearing issues. He is scheduled on the 22nd to, for them to go in and get a better look at his ears. It's still to be determined to look at his lungs and eyes. In each procedure, he has to, put to be put to sleep, and it's a more like a surgery. So we have to plan them out. Courtney, I, I think a lot of people agree that it's unbelievable what, what you and what Oylen went through. And we hope you get the answers that, that you're seeking. We're here to help. And just thank you for coming and talking about it tonight. Wish you the best. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And we'll continue to update you on that story. Also tonight, we're following the latest in the 2024 race. Donald Trump is in New Hampshire right now. He is turning up his attacks on Nikki Haley ahead of the primary there next week. Things are getting ugly already. The question is how much uglier they'll get between now and Tuesday. As we speak, former President Donald Trump is at a rally in New Hampshire tonight following his dominant win in Iowa. He is now ramping up his attacks on Nikki Haley, who polls have shown has been gaining ground on Trump in New Hampshire ahead of next Tuesday's first in the nation primary. Joining me tonight, Ashley Allison, who was the National Coalition's director for the 2020 Biden-Harris campaign. Also with us is Republican strategist and pollster Lee Carter. And Lee, I want to start with you because I do wonder what you're what you make of what Trump's tactic has been. I don't think it's surprising he's going after Nikki Haley. Yeah. He's she's they're the most worried about her at this point. But the way he's doing it, you know, for the first time that I've ever seen him do referring to her by her name, Nimrata, which she doesn't go by. Right. She goes by Nikki, obviously. But doing that, of course, this comes from someone who we have seen what he's done in the past with, with Vice President Harris, with President Obama, making very clear you know, what his intentions are. Yeah, I mean, it is, I don't want to say it is what it is, or he is who he is. It's the kind of tactic that he like, loves to use. Um, and a lot of people can get really offended by him, but his supporters love it. They love that he's tough. They love that he's a fighter. They love that he's a bully. They love that he's feisty. They think that he's going to go down to back into the White House and blow things up. And that is just fine with them. And these kinds of attacks work with Republican Trump supporter voters. And so you it's, think this it's will hard be to understand. I do think it's going to, well, New Hampshire is its own animal, right? Because New yeah. Hampshire has got a lot of moderates and, uh, and, and it is very, very different. But I think one of the things that he's talking about, in addition to the, all the attention that we're giving to, to what he called her, her name, he also is going about, she's not tough enough to handle what we need to. And that, I think, is really important because 82% of voters out there say they want a fighter. 82% of his voters say they want, a, they, they want a fighter. And so I think that is what he's playing into. I, I, well, I think he's playing into <laughs> misogyny and racism with his comments, which is not... Uh, foreign com construct to Donald Trump. You you just mentioned what he did to Donald or to President Obama and Vice President Harris. And not to mention all of the policies he had during his administration, starting with the Muslim ban and separating uh, uh, immigrants from mothers and children or, you know, using derogatory language to talk about COVID, which led to a spike in hate crimes towards Asian American individuals. He is not new to waging war almost against the other. And it is something that his supporters like. And the question is why? Because Donald Trump is playing to a fear for a lot of white Americans right now to say like, we wanna make America great again and make this our country again. 
which is why it's so frustrating that when Nikki Haley had an opportunity to be tough and actually call him out this week and on the history of our country, she totally cowered to the base of his party and saying, we aren't, we, our country was never racist. My party is not racist. Can we play the leader that of your bite? free, of your party is literally using a racist undertone by calling you by your name that you don't even go by because of racial undertone. I'm glad you brought that up because that's a moment that stood out to me on the campaign trail too. It's not just Nikki Haley who she went out of her way and brought this up. She wasn't even asked about it at the Fox News interview, but Ron DeSantis was asked by Wolf about it. This is what they both said. We're not a racist country, Brian. We've never been a racist country. I faced racism when I was growing up, but I can tell you today is a lot better than it was then. The U.S. Uh, is not a, a racist country, and we've overcome things in our history. I think the Republican Party uh, stands for merit and achievement and colorblindness. That is what we should stand for. What do you make of those two answers? Two very different answers, I should know. They're, they're, they're very, very different answers. But I think one of the things that has happened, right, is Republicans have taken so many, uh, so, so, so many hits for being the racist party. So I think they, whenever they can, they deflect it. And I, I think there's, there's reasons why, and you're talking about the reasons why they, that the Republicans have been called the racist party, but they will just deflect it and push it away because they want no association but with does it. That because work? to them, to them and to the Republicans, they are not racist. They don't believe that we're a racist country. They but, know that there's work to be done, but they don't believe that we are a racist country and they you, don't want to be labeled as such. But you can't solve a problem if you won't address it. And I mean, it's funny hearing it from Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis is the leader of the culture wars. He's the person trying to erase black history from curriculum. And it might be actually why he's dragging so low in the polls is because Americans understand the history of our country and they don't want that kind of divisive politics. So I, I'm not surprised with the three of them and the way they're taking it, but it's not a winning strategy for the general and it's undermining a lot of the populations that they're going to need to support them. Ashley Allison, Lee Carter, thank you both. Thank you. Up next, Arnold Schwarzenegger was detained at an airport overseas. A source close to him says it's an incompetent shakedown. What happened ahead? Was Arnold Schwarzenegger shaken down at an airport today? That is what a source close to him is alleging tonight after the former California governor and movie star was detained by customs for more than two hours in Munich for allegedly failing to declare a luxury watch upon arrival. A watch I should note that he owns, according to this source. That source that says the actor was brought to a bank to prepay potential taxes on the timepiece. The Terminator does not appear to be two-faced by what happened to him. He posted this picture afterward, feeding a cookie to his pet pig. We'll keep you updated on that important story and all of them. Thank you so much for joining us for this busy new hour. A brand new episode of King Charles starts right now.